morning we continue our series looking at the various expressions of the fruit of the Spirit, and this morning we turn our attention to self-control as one expression of the fruit of the Spirit. Next week we'll be, we'll be wrapping up our series on the fruit of the Spirit, and then after that, a day will begin preaching through the, seven, the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation, which will be a wonderful series over the course of the summer. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul uses an image to describe what the Christian life is like. It's an image that he draws from the Isthmian Games, which were the second largest and second most well-known games of ancient times, second only to the Olympics themselves. These games occurred every two years in Corinth, which is the location of the church to which Paul is writing. Paul gives them this encouragement. He says, Do you not know? That in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest... After preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we need your spirit to understand your truth in your word. So, Lord, would you give us a bigger picture of the prize for which we run, that in longing for it and yearning for it, that you would push out all competing desires and that you, Lord, by the working of your spirit, would grow in us self-control. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we turn to this word, self-control. What is it? I was really, as with each of these words, one of the things that I do is I first look at the word. I look at it in Greek. I look it up in lexicons and Greek word books to understand the meaning of the word. I study it in comparable passages to get different dimensions of it. Look at the etymology of the word, which is how the root of the word was developed. And I do this, have done this every week as we have been working through this series on the fruit of the Spirit. So I spent an hour studying what exactly the word, the Greek word for self-control meant. And after an hour of studying it, I came to this conclusion that the word for self-control means, in every one of these resources, it means the control of self. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I know that's... Uh, just another benefit you get for coming to Cornerstone on Sunday mornings here. Um, self-control, a fruit of, the, fruit of the Spirit, an expression of it. It's an idea that biblically is expressed throughout Scripture, and it's really identified as something that's necessary at every stage of the Christian life. In the book of Titus, Paul writing to his protege Titus, instructing them, instructing him on how to pastor the church, he tells them the discipleship plan that's needed for the church. He's saying, if you want your church to grow as a follower of Christ, this is what you need to tell them to do and help them do. He says, for those of you who are older men, who are older because of age, that you, whether you've been Christians for a while, the thing that older men need is this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. What do older men need most in their spiritual journey? Self-control. And then he turns and he talks to older women. What do older women mean? He says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, 
not slanderers, and not slaves to much wine. He's saying, ladies, lay off. You need some self-control. Self-control in your evening celebrations, self-control at Thanksgiving. Exercise self-control. And then he instructs the women, the older women, how they are to teach the younger women. He says, older women, don't be slaves to much wine. You are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled. So what do older women need? Well, they need self-control. What do younger women need? Self-control. Older men, what do they need? Self-control. Now, on those three groups, he kind of gives three different, he, he adds some other instructions connected to them. And then he turns to young men, and he says, likewise, do you know what young men need? He says, guys, if you can just get this right, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So every group, what do they say? Here is your discipleship plan for the church. Focus, whether people are older or younger, whether they are male or female, what everyone needs is to grow in self-control. The Bible, in the book of Proverbs, gives a very vivid picture of what the lack of self-control looks like. It says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Ponder that image in ancient times. It's like a city without walls. What does that mean? It means that the city has no defenses. It means that the city is unable to keep out that which should stay out, and it is unable to keep in that which should stay in. That it is completely subject to the whims, to the winds that are blowing, to the robbers and the bandits that would come through, to an uh, engaging army that would seek to conquer them. It is completely subject to both of those things. What does that look like? Well, Rich Gantz, who's a pastor and he's a counselor, he gives this illustration. He says, you know, sometimes people will say something like this. You know, my problem is anger. Fill in the blank. My problem is, pick your word. He says, my problem is anger. And he says, when someone tells you this, this is what they're saying. He says, my problem is anger. I'm telling you now that I'm the kind of person who has no self-control. Don't expect me to use self-control with you because I don't use it with anyone. I get away with my anger because I tell people that I have a problem with anger, and therefore I'm not accountable for my anger because I told you that I have a problem with anger. Fill in the blank. And to which someone will respond, oh, so how you're describing yourself is that you're like a city whose walls have been completely broken down. You are unable to keep in that which should not go out. Your anger just goes wherever it is. Again, fill in the blank for what that would be for you. So we can look at this and we can see, okay, self-control, a a lack of control is certainly the opposite of self-control. When you see the fruit of the Spirit, it's contrasted to a list and it says, for the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, immorality, debauchery, drunkenness, it lists several other things, all of which are related to self-control. So we can say, okay, the lack of self-control is certainly not self-control. So we would say, well, what is self-control? Self-control is, um, I mean, that would, that would be like having discipline, would it not? I mean, it would mean you need to be disciplined in your life. I learned the meaning of discipline a few years ago when 
Shortly after I arrived at Cornerstone, I was, how old was I? I was 27 years old, and I went to a, a training, an evangelism training with Bill Marriott. Some of you know him. Really great guy. Uh, Love the Lord. And Bill was the command master chief for Navair. Had a very distinguished career, and he had done, uh, he had done, as we were driving to this training, he was telling me his career. He had done two tours with the Blue Angels. Uh, he had done a variety of things, a very, very distinguished career. And he said, of every assignment I had in my career, he said, by far, the most favorite, my most favorite assignment that I have ever had was being a drill sergeant. He said, I loved being a drill sergeant. He said, I loved it so much that whenever I could justify it and I was in town where boot camp was happening, I would go into boot camp just so that I could yell at people for a couple days, right? (laughs) And so I didn't know Bill very well at all. And so we're driving to this training and he's telling me how much he likes to yell at people, you know, how he likes to, you know, jump into the barracks and yell at them all to get out of bed and jump and what have you. And so... I'm rooming with this guy, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's this going to be like? <laughs> and Bill had discipline. Every mor- like He would go to bed, and when he would go to bed, his, his socks were at the appropriate height. His, shorts, his shirt was meticulously tucked into his gym shorts. His bed, which was perfectly made, he would, he would climb under the covers, and he would pull them up, and he would lay flat on his back with his hands across his chest, and there would be no wrinkle in the sheets. His toes would be at a 90-degree angle at the bottom, and he would lay there and sleep peacefully all night long. And then at 5 a.m., like a rocket, boom, he would, the alarm would go off, and he would go from horizontal to vertical, like 90 degrees, boom, right? And then he would take his sheets, and he would fold them down in thirds, one-third, 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 rotate, drop his knees off the end of the bed, stand up in one smooth motion, rotate back, and go one-third, 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 remake his bed, and... Uh, remake his bed, and then he would proceed to change his clothes. He'd take his shirt off, lay it on the bed, make it flat, one-third fold, one-third fold, sleeve, sleeve, one-third fold, one-third fold, square on the bottom corner. Shorts, same deal, socks, bound up, fold at the corner corner of the bed. And so every morning at 5 a.m., and then he would go on a two-and-a-half-mile run. And so every morning at 5 a.m., this would happen, and I would open up my eye, and I would see Bill doing, I would see Bill doing this, and my thought was, is he going to yell at me, was thought number one. And then my second thought was, time to roll over. And then I would roll over, I'd roll over, I'd roll over and, and go back to sleep. And, and, and Bill was a remarkable man, remarkable man who, who loved the Lord. And, uh, and if any of you know him, it was uh, just a privilege, privilege to, know, to know Bill. I mention that because many of you have been trained in discipline. Many of you have been trained to be disciplined in your life through your military career, through your military service. Others of you have been trained to be disciplined because you joined an athletic team and you, were, you had a coach who forced you to do things that you did not want to do so that you could become what you always wanted to become. And, be, <coughs> excuse me. and from that, from that training that you have received and because of your own discipline that you have had in your life, many of us really hold to this idea that there is nothing in life that you cannot accomplish if you set your mind to it. If you are disciplined enough and you work hard enough, there is virtually nothing you can't do. Many of your careers are testaments to that, and that you have had remarkable careers because of personal self-effort and because of personal discipline. And while self-control is not less than discipline, While it is not less than discipline, discipline in and of itself 
is not self-control. Because it is entirely possible for you who live very disciplined lives, it is entirely possible that your discipline is the number one thing in your life that is keeping you away from Jesus Christ. It is entirely possible that your discipline is the biggest obstacle in your faith because you have become so disciplined in living for you, you don't give a thought to living for Jesus Christ and what that means and how that works out in your life. And you say, wait a second, how can that be? Let me ask you, did the Pharisees bear the spiritual fruit of self-control? They were disciplined. Did they bear self-control? No. Why? Because the thing that we have seen each and every week throughout this series, and as Keller says, is this. It is entirely possible to have a morally restrained heart without having a supernaturally changed heart. So how is self-control different from discipline? I think one way you can see it is the way that discipline works in many of our lives. Is that we swing from discipline to indulgence. We say, you know, we're people, we work hard, we, we work hard, we train hard, and then we what? We play hard. We work hard, and then we party hard. And sometimes people think, you know, like if you've been on an exercise plan, if you've been managing what you're eating, and all of a sudden the holidays come around, the thought goes through our minds, you know what, I've been good, I've been disciplined, now it's time for me to indulge. I've been disciplined, now it's time for me to indulge. And then January 1st comes around and we say, I've been indulging, now it's time for me to be disciplined. Now to be clear, I am for celebration. The Bible is for celebration. God gave life to enjoy and good things to enjoy. Scripture says he gives wine to gladden the heart of men. But how often does the thought go through our mind that if you're one who is living a disciplined life, if you're following some sort of regimented plan and you break it, How easy, how quickly does the thought go through your mind when you say, you know what, I've already gone this far, what's one more? Or you're in a relationship with somebody, and you said, you know what, we've already gone this far physically in our relationship, what's a little bit more? Discipline is not the same as self-control. Similarly, It is possible that you can have a person who is completely disciplined in every aspect of their life. Genuinely and truly, it is absolutely possible. But is that self-control? The answer is no. Because the question then becomes, if a person is disciplined in every aspect of their life, are they joyful? Or do they love people well? Are the other fruits of the, of the Spirit being expressed in their life, in addition to discipline and self-control, are the other fruits of the Spirit being expressed? Is there discipline and joy? Is there discipline and love? Are they willing to set aside their discipline in order to love somebody else? And almost always the answer is no, not at all. So Ed Welch, who was a Christian counselor, he clarifies this difference between discipline, changing bad habits with self-control. He states this, He says, when moral reformation becomes the goal, if the goal is you want to change, you want to be a better person, you want to fix your life in some area, he says, when moral reformation becomes the goal, the purpose might actually be to avoid Jesus, to avoid him. He says, in the same way that ungodly indulgence was ultimately self-serving, self-reformation might continue in the exact same theme. 
Self-effort, apart from dependence on Christ, remains a self-focused pursuit. We could argue that a self-centered person who is sober is better than a self-centered person who is a drunk. And in a certain sense, that would be true. Given that addictions, some addictions have dreadful consequences, abstinence and sobriety at least keep a person's reckless indulgence from hurting too many others. But he goes on to say this. However, there is a sense in which the person is no better or even no worse off. Why? Is they've just simply replaced one thing for another. They've replaced one form of self-reliance and self-medication for another form of self-reliance and self-medication, albeit they're only doing it in a way that is much more socially acceptable and people commend them for. So self-control, what is it? Yes, it is an expression of the fruit of the Spirit. And the biblical picture of self-control, as we'll see here in a moment, is this image like what God did with the Israelites. He told them when he brought them out of Egypt that he was giving them the promised land and that he would ensure that they would be victorious. He was giving them everything that they needed to receive the promised land. And he says to them, now that you have everything that you need, go seize it by force. Go take it by force. When it comes to the area of self-control, God is giving you everything that you need through Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. He is giving you everything that you need to have self-control. And what do we do in response to that? You seize it by force. So what's the definition of biblical definition of self-control? Self-control is checking the desires of our heart, keeping them in check, and directing them for the good of others and for the love of God. So, how does this get cultivated? So, we're going to take a look here at the discipline of self-control as Paul establishes it in this this passage. What I'm identifying here is how do you gain self-control in your life? There's three things you need to know. You need to know in this passage. You need to know the prize. You need to work the plan. And you need to enlist partners. To know the prize, Paul says this. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. I do not box as one beating the air, so I do not run aimlessly. He says, don't run the Christian life, which is a race. Don't run like a person who has no fixed goals. People who who enter races don't do such things. And he's identifying, yes, the Christian life is a race. Different from a marathon, there are more than one winner. There are more than one person that gets the prize of crossing the finish line and getting placed with it. And he says, and so he says, know where you're running towards. Yogi Berra famously said, he said, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up someplace else. Or someone else put it this way, they said, if you don't know if you're headed east or west, every decision becomes, a, every intersection becomes a separate stressful decision. And so in the, Christian life, in the Christian life, you need to know the prize that you are running towards. And if you don't know that you are on a race, you're never going fin- to finish that race. Paul gives another image. He says, I don't box as one who is beating the air. The idea of a boxer entering into the boxing ring and spinning around just beating at the air is absurd. It is just as absurd as a runner who, is, who does not know where he is running to. One looks at effectiveness, the other one looks at purposefulness. Paul's point in these two images is this. He says, look at all of their preparation. Look at the runner. Look at the self-discipline that they exercise. 
in all of life. Look at the boxer. Look at how much they train. Look how every aspect of their life is managed towards the prize that they are pursuing. Look at all of that. He says, they do all of that for a crown that is perishable. And it literally was. In the Isthmian games, you or the winner would receive a crown of pine. After a while, they switched it to a crown of wild celery. My guess is that rotted a little quicker, so they switched back to pine after some time. But they received a crown that literally perished. They trained their entire life for this moment of fame and this moment of glory. And do you know what happens after that? They died in its place, remembered them no more. No more. And Paul raises this idea saying, look at, look at this. You, these people who train their whole lives for something that is an imperishable crown, look at what they're doing. But you run for something that is imperishable. The reason why you need to know what the prize is that you're running for is because what you are running for tr- changes the way you run and changes how you run. Your mindset in training and your mindset in the race is very different if you are running a 40-yard dash versus running a marathon. And there are some Christians who, who run, but they don't actually care about finishing. And guess what? They usually never obtain the prize. So the first thing that's necessary is to know the prize. We'll come back to that in a minute. The second thing that's necessary is to work the plan. Paul says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And then he says picking up the boxing image, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. He literally says, there he literally says, I pummel my body and I make it my slave. Not because Paul is opposed to the flesh, not that he's opposed to the material world. Paul's emphasis here is that he exercises self-restraint. He exercises the control of himself. He looks at the athlete and he says, when the athlete trains, he trains in all of life. It's not just one hour a day and then it doesn't matter what he does the rest of the day. It changes how he lives. It changes what he eats. It changes his sleep pattern. Everything that he does is towards the one goal and towards the prize. And he has a plan to make that happen. And in his plan, he excludes things that might be lawful. He excludes things that would either harm his body or get in the way of pursuing his goal. What's the calling for us? Is that we need to restrain from things which might be lawful, In pursuit of the prize, we need to remove anything that hinders spiritual progress. Is it your television? Get rid of your television. Is it your phone? Get rid of your phone. What is it that hinders spiritual progress in your life? And remove it. For the arduous, the hard, self-denial and discipline of the athlete who works so hard for a perishable reward is surely a rebuke to half-hearted, flabby Christianity. And Paul's saying, brothers and sisters, exercise, have a plan, and work the plan so that you keep your eyes fixed on the goal. And if you're going to be successful in it, the third thing that you need is you need to know the prize, work the plan, is that you need to enlist partners in the plan for you. Boxing, running is an individual event. But does a boxer, though his fight is alone, does he train alone? Absolutely not. Does he fight alone? No, he's got his coach in the corner. And what's the coach's job? The coach's job is to know the strengths of the boxer, to help him train, to overcome his weaknesses, 
to give him strategy for the fight that is ahead, and not only to do that for himself, but the job of the coach is also to know the opponent and to help the boxer train for the opponent that he is about to, about to battle. And for runners, do elite runners, do they do this completely on their own? Not at all. They've got a coach. They've got a support team. They've already known what the course is going to be mapped out. There are fans who are cheering them on. There are partners who are joining with them to encourage them in their plan so that they pursue the goal. What does it mean for us spiritually? It means that the Christian life is like a boxing match. It's like running a race, and we need to surround ourselves with a coach with people, with co-laborers, with people who encourage us to keep our eyes fixed on the prize and to live towards that. Simple ways to do that, join a journey group when we start them back up in the fall. Get connected in relationship. Contact your elder and get together with them and say, can you pray for me? Can you help me understand things? Can you help me see, see things in my life that I don't see? If there are specific areas of your life that are out of control, You need to make a plan, and you need to make it public, and you need to make it public to those who are your partners. For example, if you are someone who struggles with food, it probably means that you need to eat in public with other people. If you are someone who lacks self-control when it comes to the internet, it means that you probably need to have access that is restricted, and you only get access when somebody else enters in a password for you. If you are someone who is wasteful with your money, it probably means that you need to develop a budget and you actually share all of your finances and all of your expenditures with somebody else to encourage you on your plan that you stay fixed on the goal. That seems, for some of us, unpleasant. In our culture more broadly, if you have a plan, people would argue, they would say, you know what? If change feels like, you know, restraint, if it feels like hard work, you know, if this is something that's going to combat my desires, well, I'm not being true to myself. This isn't what I need. In fact, today, the idea of self-control is uh, discouraged. The term that's used is discipline instead. In fact, one of the, uh, in some of the new age healing stuff, you know, life coaching, life coaching is really big right now. Get yourself a life coach. Uh, become who you truly are. That's so prominent in our culture right now. One of the life coaches wrote this. They said, one of the problems in your life is that you're trying to pursue self-control, and you should not be pursuing self-control. She writes this. She says, the problem with self-control is that it's a dominating attempt to force yourself to behave. The problem with self-control is that it's a dominating attempt to force yourself to behave. And they said, and she goes on to say, and what's wrong with self-control is that if you're trying to force yourself to behave, you're limiting who you you should truly become. So as opposed to trying to force yourself to behave, you need to come up with a plan so that you can express your desires, and you can live out your desires, and you can manifest your desires, and there's there's nothing that will get in the way of that. That's the way our culture responds to it. And they would say, you need discipline. They would hold discipline, but don't, absolutely not, don't try to have self-control. As Christians, we would spiritualize this a lot more. I mean, we wouldn't say something like that. We would say something like this. We would say, you know what? If this change in my life 
me working on self-control, if this is going to require self-effort, if this is going to require hard work, if it's going to require discipline, if I'm going to be accountable to someone, if I'm going to be publicly accountable to someone and they're going to ask me about how I did on my plan, ah, that sounds legalistic and obviously not from the Holy Spirit. We don't want to go, we don't want to go down that route in that regard. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, no, I exercise. I exercise, self, I exercise discipline. I control myself. And he does so so that he could, live, he could live in pursuit of the goal. Let's take a little bit closer look at that. Those are the disciplines of self-control. Know the prize, work the plan, and enlist partners. What exactly is the prize of self-control? What exactly is it for which we run? What is the battle? What are we trying to obtain? Well, Paul gives a clarification in verse 27. He says, I do all these things so that after preaching to others, I myself, he said, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, why do I do all this? I just simply do it so I don't get DQ'd. I I do all of this stuff so that I actually make it to the finish line and and I don't get disqualified from the race. Now, we might listen to that and we say, okay, that's a little bit confusing. I mean, after all, aren't, isn't the message of Christianity that we're saved by God's grace alone? We're saved not by what we do, but wholly by what Christ has done? Isn't it true that there's nothing that we could do to make God love us any more or make God un- love us any less? Isn't that the message of Christianity? Absolutely. Paul says it repeatedly in every one of his, le- every one of his lessons. So are we saved by grace alone? Yes. And do you know what happens to people who are saved by grace alone? Do you know what happens to them? They run. They run. They run the race that is set before them. They fix their eyes on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of their faith. They throw off every sin that has been entangled. They say, because I am living my life in response to God's grace, I want more of Christ in my life. Because I am living in response to God's grace, I want nothing in my life that would displease Him. Because I live in response to God's grace, I want other people to know the joy that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I train, I exercise, I demonstrate self-control, I do all of these things because of God's grace in my life. I think for some of us, part of the reason why we don't exercise self-control why we don't train? Why we say, yeah, the Christian's life, the Christian life is a race, but it's kind of like more on the, it's kind of like a race on, with my kids on the lazy river. You know, we're all kind of in the floats and we're all kind of like spinning around in circles and like, hey, I wonder who's going to get to the finish line first. You know, let's spin around. And Paul's like, no. Is that I think the reason why we don't train for the race is because we think that finishing the race is inevitable. We think that finishing the race is a foregone conclusion and that it's certain. You know, the longer I am in ministry, the more I grow in my complete confidence in the grace of God. And the more I also grow in being sobered at how many don't finish the race, of how many pastors don't finish the race, of how many Christians. I don't know, put on a show for years 
and don't finish the race. And so Paul, when Paul says throughout his teachings that I am saved by grace alone, he is absolutely true and he is absolutely correct. But Paul is also keenly aware of the people's own self-deception. He says, yes, I do all of this. I pummel my body. I exercise self-control. I train. I do all of this so that, so that I don't get disqualified. And if you don't run, if you don't know you're on a race, you're not going to finish the race. And if you don't know where you're running towards, you're not going to get there. And Paul says we need to do all of these things so that we would obtain the prize and not get disqualified. But again, what is that prize? We look at verse 24 and it says this, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Now, so we might think about this and say, okay, the athlete, the Olympiad, he runs the race in order to get this crown, which is the celery roll rot. It's a perishable wreath. But we, we run for an eternal crown. We run for a crown that's going to last forever. We run for an eternal reward. We run so that when we cross the finish line, God would look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did not compromise. You persevered. You were faithful. Others abandoned, but not you. You made it. Is that the crown that's imperishable? Sorry. I know that's the way that many of you have read this passage. It's not. And the reason why it's not is Paul tells us what the crown is and the goal and the prize in the verse before. In verse 23, he states this. He says, in every commentary, the the, the paragraph break is a little bit difficult, but every commentary will say, verse 23, in biblical scholars, verse 23 is the introduction to verse 24 through 27. They state verse 23, and then he explains verse 23 and verses 24 and 27. So Paul says this, I do it all. What's the goal? I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all that I might share with them. With them? Who's them? With others, with the Gentiles, with the Jews. I do it all that I might share with others who come to faith in Christ. I do it all that I might share with them in its blessings. What does that mean? He says, I do all of this. The goal that I am living for, the prize that I am seeking to obtain, is he says, I am doing this, that the gospel would expand, that there would be progress, that the gospel would spread to the end of the earth. And he goes on to say, he says, I do it that I, would, that I may share with them in the blessings. The NAS is a difficult phrase. The NAS translates it this way. It says, I do it all in order that I may become a fellow partaker with them. The goal I am pressing on is that I would become a fellow partaker with them. Now consider the shift of the image. We would anticipate Paul to say, Paul, I do this all that I would receive the crown of God's commendation. I do this all that I would receive my eternal reward. I would come to heaven. That's what we would anticipate. That is not what Paul says. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, for the progress of the gospel. I do it all that I may share with them that I may be a participant, that I may be a partaker in the blessings of the gospel. Let me ask you this. Does that disappointing? 
Do you hear that? And you say, wait, wait a second. I have been thinking about this crown and this mansion in heaven that I'm going to get. Are you saying that, I, that, that I, don't, I don't get anything? If that's your question, listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. If your primary concern for living the Christian life is what you're going to get, you're not living for God. You're living for yourself. And you're living for yourself and you're using God as a means to get what you want for yourself. And Paul says that's not what this is about. He says, I run the race. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all that I would share in his blessings. Paul is saying, I want to so embody the gospel. I want to so participate in the gospel, so reflect the gospel, so display the gospel, the goodness of Jesus Christ, that anybody who looks at me, that anybody who comes in contact with me, that they will see the gospel in my life when they touch me, that they would be like they were touching Jesus Christ. He wants to be a participant in it. He wants to partake of the full blessings. What are those blessings? There are many. One of those is this image that works through the whole pages of Scripture. How God originally created us to be in relationship with him. He made mankind. He bestowed men and women with beauty and dignity. He, res- he made them to bear his image. What that means is that we people were created to reflect the glory of God. They were created that when, people will, that when other people looked at other people, they would look at one another and it would reflect the goodness and the glory of God. And God had decided that by doing so and making us that way, what would happen is that we would have true meaning, true purpose, that we would actually live for something significant and that the glory of God would become increasing in our lives and we would become more and more radiant as the glory of God increasingly flex, reflects on us. But instead, each one of us turned and centered our lives on ourselves. We pursued other things to give us glory and significance. Anything in your life that you are looking for for significance is derived from something greater. It's the reason why anything that you have done that is worthwhile or significant is because it is attached to something greater than yourself. This week, the NBA, you know, the NBA finals were going on. Let me ask you, um, if those of you that watched them, how many people in, um, have you ever watched the basketball finals in Kazakhstan? Have you? No? Well, why not? You know, I guess the basketball finals in Kazakhstan, who watches that? How many people in Kazakhstan watch the NBA finals? A lot. A lot. Why? Because it's the NBA Finals. And so if you've got a basketball player who makes it in the NBA Finals, I mean, that guy's really something. His glory is derived from something greater. I mentioned Bill Marriott. Bill Marriott did two tours with the Blue Angels, right? Almost everyone who knows Bill Marriott, if they introduce him, that's almost the second thing out of their mouth. He did two tours with the Blue Angels. Why is that significant? Well, I mean, he did the same job in other squadrons, And everyone's like, well, why it's significant is because it's the Blue Angels, and the Blue Angels are awesome. And if the Blue Angels are awesome, that means that he's awesome. Hopefully. Hopefully. But what happens is that if you are running the race to get glory from anyone and anything else, they perish. They perish. They are a crown that dies. For people who have trained for the Olympic Games and they get that final moment, guess what happens? They get the wreath, it perishes, and their place in a couple years remembers them no more. However, when you live for God, 
When you live to get glory, not from the blue angels, not from basketball, not from your career, not from how good of a Christian you are, not from all these different things. When you live for God alone, who is the ultimate, who is the the one who has glory above glory, when you live for him, suddenly his glory increasingly gets manifested in your life and brings wholeness and healing, and you live for a true purpose. And not only that, but it happens in the area of, of shame. Many of us have shame for things that we have done, things that were done to us that were outside of our control. And the amazing truth of, the, of, of Scripture is that through Christ Jesus, you are united to Christ, and your shame is taken away from you. The ick factor of your life has been removed, and God clothes you with beauty, and he clothes you with dignity, and he clothes you with, with, with love, and he clothes you with his own... With his own uh, the, with Christ's righteousness, and he makes you a part of his own, your, your own, his own family? For some of you, it's a story of going from fear, that you lived your life in fear. Fear about what would happen next. Fear about this present moment. And when you came to Christ, you came to know that you had a heavenly Father who loves you, who watches over you, who cares for you each and every day, so you don't need to live your life in fear. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying, I want, what am I striving for? I want all of it. I want to participate in every aspect of this. I want the glory of Christ to be increasingly manifested in my life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to become more and more like Jesus. Anything that isn't just is compromised and is a waste. I want to know the full dignity of Christ. I want to know the beauty of Christ. I want his full righteousness experience. I want to know what his self-control is like. I want every aspect of this in my life. And Paul says, that's what, he's, that's what the prize is. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them, participate with others in the blessings of who we are in Christ Jesus. That is a comprehensive purpose that generates self-control. Nothing else will. No other Christian discipline will. You know, I might say, let's say that the goal, the goal is to see other people become Christians. I could do that. I could devote myself, you know, to getting more training. I could focus on, as a preacher, rhetorical skills and arguments to be really, really disciplined and really, really, humanly speaking, good at it. It would not produce self-control in my life. If the goal was moral uprightness, I could be really, really disciplined to live life that is beyond questioning, and it would still not produce self-control in my life. And you could go through every one of these other things. Why do those things not produce self-control? Because it is entirely possible to have self-control in one area and be a wreck in another area. It is possible to have a morally restrained heart, but not have a morally changed heart. And if what you are living for is anything other than God himself, you will fall short. And it will leave you empty. However, if God in Christ Jesus is your highest goal, if God is your greatest love, what hap- if you love God above all else, what happens is that yourself becomes less and less. And when you are living for something that is greater than yourself, the promotion of yourself becomes less and less, and the control of yourself becomes more and more. What does all that mean? It means this, is that Jesus Christ, working through the power of his Holy Spirit, has provided 
everything that you need for self-control. Know the prize, and may we seize it by force. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you provide everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Lord, I, I thank you that you are so much better than the claustrophobic confines of my own little life. I thank you that your glory is so much better that me living and finding your glory is so much better than for me living and trying to get to the end of my life and saying, did I get any, did I get any, did I get any glory? Jesus, you are alone, are worthy of all honor and praise. Jesus, it is at you, the name above every name, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would grow our love, that our love for you would displace any other lust, any other desire that has run amok in our lives. And Father, that as we love you above all else, that you, by your Spirit, would grow us in self-control. For the honor of your name we pray. Amen.